Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and I am super excited for part three of our four-part exploration of different world cocktail cultures. In the past two episodes, we delved into the history of the spice trade and the cocktail influences exerted by the Indian subcontinent, and then we took a trip to the North American frontier where we learned about the rise of the saloon and the story of how ice paved the way for the modern cocktail. If you listen to either of those episodes, you know that we're also celebrating the launch of the Embitterment Heritage Collection, which is our new premium line of cocktail bitters. So if you want to learn a lot about the flavor profiles uh, or signature cocktails you can experiment with when using our liquid gold ancient trade bitters or our frontier sarsaparilla bitters, you can find a lot of great descriptions and recipes in those last few episodes that I just described that's going to help fuel your imagination and your next cocktail experiments. Today's guest of honor, though, is our Iki Japanese bitters, which highlight some of the most important flavors from the Japanese archipelago. In addition to some great cocktail recipes and a bit of Japanese history and culture, we're also going to feature in this episode an interview with Jennifer Blozer of Oregon Coast Wasabi. I do have just a few quick announcements before we jump in, though, and these are a couple of different opportunities for you to get some in-person cocktail learn in action here in the D.C. area. First... I got an email from our friend of the podcast, Chad Robinson, the other day, who is a brand rep over at Catoctin Creek Distilling in Percival, Virginia. And Chad wanted me to share with you that there's a series called The Art of the Cocktail led by Catoctin Creek founder Scott Harris. And you've still got time to sign up for the three final courses, which are January 26th, the New Orleans Mojo, the Sophisticated and Complex Beauty of the Sazerac, then on February 2nd, we've got Moonshine in American Culture, 1930 to present day. And finally, on February 9th, we've got Toddies and Warm Cocktails. All those sound like really excellent classes, and Scott Harris is a great teacher. He's a really great, uh, really great guy, and he knows a ton about cocktails. So uh, if you can get out to Purcellville, Virginia, definitely check out those classes being hosted by Catoctin Creek. Next, if you want to come out and chill with the modern bar cart team myself included definitely put february 3rd on your calendar when we'll be at mcclintock distilling in frederick maryland for their annual winter whiskey market you can sample and purchase our entire line of products there including the new embitterment heritage collection and there will be good food live music throughout the afternoon I can tell you these guys definitely know how to throw a party, so come and hang out anytime from noon to 8 p.m. And again, that's Saturday, February 3rd at McClintock Distilling in Frederick, Maryland. We've got more events and educational opportunities in the works for you, so stay tuned on social media and right here on the podcast for more updates. But for now, I think it's time we jumped in and started learning about the cultural flavors of Japan.
With fossil records of human habitation going back at least 30,000 years, the culture of Japan is an ancient one. As far back as history remembers, the relationship of the Japanese to the other people of the Asian mainland has been one of distance and scrutiny. A willingness to hear news and receive technology, but a hesitancy to open their land to foreign influence. One of the influences that did sneak through, though, is Buddhism, which continues to live happily side by side with Shinto, the ancient Japanese animistic religion. And this brings us to one of many contradictions in Japanese culture. The essentially peaceful nature of Buddhism placed squarely against a history of almost constant warfare, both between clans and with outside powers. Now, I don't want this podcast to get bogged down by all the war and intrigue, and there's a lot of it. There's the discussion about what is and what is not a samurai, the code of honor and conduct that is bushido, the highly rigid caste system that divided nobles from tradesmen from peasants. That's a lot to talk about, and it would take literally days for us to wade through it all. Japanese culture and history is super complex. That's why we're going to bypass a lot of that stuff and place our focus instead on cuisine and art, two of my favorite aspects of Japanese culture. Japan sits on the edge of several tectonic plates, and there are actually hundreds of active volcanoes in the archipelago. That volcanic soil makes for good farming, but if you know what Japan looks like, you know there's not a whole lot of room for sprawling farms like we have here in the U.S. So a lot of their cuisine comes from the ocean. And that's where sushi comes in. Just like in the cocktail world, the goal of a sushi chef is to balance the flavors in a given piece of sushi to perfectly reflect the flavor profile he or she desires. You need to take into consideration the texture and flavor of the fish, the stickiness of the rice, the salt of seaweed and soy sauce, the spice of wasabi, the juicy saline pop of the roe or fish eggs, the tang of pickled vegetables, and any number of other variables as well. It's a complicated art, rooted solidly in tradition, but also in playful experimentation and elaborate display. If you want to check out a really great documentary on sushi, definitely look up Hero Dreams of Sushi, which follows one of the top sushi chefs in Japan and unveils the magic of the craft. We'll link to that in the show notes because it's definitely one of my favorite documentaries of all time. And since we're on the subject of flavor and the Japanese cultural flavor palette, I think it's a great time to break down our Iki Japanese bitters and talk about why we zeroed in on the flavors of Japan for this project. As some of you know, there's a taste known as umami, which is a Japanese word that describes the presence of glutamate, which is a savory meat-like flavor. Officially identified by Japanese professor Kikuni Ikeda in 1908, this taste, and notice I say taste here, not flavor, is perhaps the most essential in Japanese cuisine. Here at Modern Bar Cart, we like umami, and we thought it would be pretty cool to see that taste show up more in the cocktail world. When we started developing these bitters, we wanted to be as authentic to traditional Japanese cuisine as possible, so we started out by trying to balance seaweed, dried shiitake mushrooms, ginger, and toasted sesame seeds all in one funky extract. Then we added sencha green tea, which is a type of green tea grown only in Japan. And it's a really clean, slightly bitter version of the green tea we're used to seeing from the big tea producers on the shelves here in the U.S., 
It adds a bit of vegetal astringency to the bitters, and like any good green tea, it's classy and subtle. And finally, we've got the most important ingredient in our Iki Japanese bitters, real wasabi. And to learn more about this ingredient, I'm going to shut up here for a little bit and let you enjoy a quick interview with Jennifer Bloser of Oregon Coast Wasabi, where we source that particular ingredient. Jennifer, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so today we are sitting down with Jennifer Bloser of Oregon Coast Wasabi, and um, we are celebrating the launch of our heritage collection of bitters here at Modern Bar Cart, and one of our flavors, the one featured in today's episode, is our Iki Japanese bitters, and they feature your wasabi. Yeah, we're really excited about it. Yes, as are we. It's, uh, in fact, it's the flavor that kind of sparked the idea for the entire line. So um, just really glad that we were able to sit down. And I'm hoping you can introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you started growing wasabi here in the U.S. Uh, sure, yeah. So I am uh, Jennifer. I'm the CEO of Oregon Coast Wasabi and the co-owner. My husband and I, Marcus Mead, own the business. Uh, we started in 2010, and um, the farm is on the coast of Oregon, where the weather is really perfect for growing wasabi. Lots of shade, lots of fog, and lots of cool temperatures. We got involved in growing wasabi because years ago, I was at an equestrian event, and someone there who was also participating, had some plants that he was getting rid of and asked any of us if we'd like some. So I took some of these wasabi plants and uh, just be kind of kind of became infatuated with them. They're, it's a beautiful, very interesting plant. And we um, had some access to this property on the farm. I had a little bit of background growing up, um, growing some things, and we decided to see what we could do with it. And it uh, sort of has taken on a life of its own now. So what is wasabi precisely? I think, I think most of us understand it as that green little dollop on the edge of the sushi tray. So more and more people are understanding that or coming upon the knowledge that most of the wasabi they get at, at sushi restaurants is fake. So most wasabi is just horseradish and mustard and dye, and there's no labeling laws for wasabi, so you can call that fake stuff wasabi as well. Real wasabi is the plant's name is Wasabia japonica, and there are a number of different varieties of it. It's a member of the same family that of, of broccoli and cauliflower. It's a cruciferous vegetable. And the part of the wasabi that you grate into what looks like the green blob of fake paste that you get is actually the stalk of the wasabi. In the wasabi world, it's often called the rhizome or the root, but um, that's actually a misnomer. So if you imagine a broccoli stalk, that's what that's the part of the plant that you actually grate up into a nice bright green, usually paste, depending on the variety. Okay, that's really interesting. So big takeaway is that what most people think of as wasabi is actually not wasabi. Um, does it differ at all in flavor uh, when you're comparing real wasabi from the stuff that you get on the sushi tray? It does, actually. 
Um, it still gives you that nice sort of punch in the nose um, spice that is immediate and then goes away. And I can talk about that in just a minute. But the flavor profile for real wasabi is actually much broader. It's a little bit sweet. It has some floral notes to it. It's not flat. And some people tell us that the after tasting the real wasabi, the um, fake wasabi tastes really flat and almost chemical, um, probably because of being dehydrated and that. So it's much. It's just a much more um, round, full taste, much more components to it in addition to the spice that people think of that goes right up into your sinuses and then disappears. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I definitely find that myself when we, when we started playing around with the real wasabi in an attempt to be as authentic as possible to the cuisine and flavor palette of Japan, the first thing I noticed was just how um, kind of vibrant and complex the flavor profile was. And you know, it's, I, I'd certainly say it's not as spicy. I mean, I, perhaps there are ways to make it as spicy, but at least when it comes out in our product, um, you get a lot more of the celery characteristics of the stock because when, when we produce our bitters, we use not only the, uh, the stock or the, what people call the rhizome, but we also use the, the leaves, uh, that you provide mm -hmm. us. And those just have this really nice kind of celery, peppery flavor, in addition to the really interesting um, kind of spice and floral components of, of the stem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The leaves are really fun, actually, to play with, and it makes me happy that you guys use those um, because a lot of people aren't familiar with the leaves. They don't, um, they're not imported into the U.S. from Japan, and and as most people are aware, there are very few wasabi farmers in Japan, or excuse me, wasabi farms in the U.S. And so the leaves don't show up in markets very often. And you can do a whole bunch of things with the leaves. And they're actually really delicious. What are some of your favorite things to do with the leaves? Well, one of the things I like to do, and actually I think you guys have done with your bitters, is, is when you juice the leaves and the leaf stalks, you get this really beautiful bright green extremely spicy juice that you can use as a base for salad dressings or marinades. We've used it as a base for sorbet mixed with uh, coconut and lime and you can freeze it. It's actually pretty stable so you can actually freeze it and keep it a long time. Uh, so sometimes I like to juice up the leaves and then use the juice. We'd also like to eat them raw. So just chopped up the leaves and the, the leaf stalks, which um, your description is great because the stalks, we talk to we talk to people about the stocks in terms of spicy celery because they're crunchy and they have that nice spice to them. So chopping them up and eating them raw in salads, and also anything you do with kale, we do with the wasabi greens. Um, you, and you can saute them, you can steam them, you can put them in soups. And one of the really cool things about these plants is that they produce the leaves year round, so it's a perennial a lot like kale. And we actually also provide people with um, plant starts so they can actually grow the greens in their, in their own backyards and in their gardens at home and have wasabi greens whenever they want them. So it's a fun little plant to have around in your house. For sure. So people can just literally go to your website and purchase those plant starts from you? Yes, they can. Yep. And we send them, we have, we ship them all over the country. Um, and obviously people buy them for themselves. They also buy them as gifts. We get photos. We love to get photos of people and their plants. 
people show us the leaves they've grown. They show us uh, photos of the rhizomes or the stalks that they've harvested. We had one woman send us some really beautiful, fun photos of her very large, like 12 or 15 pound rabbit that liked to jump in there, plant their pot and eat all the wasabi greens. Um, so we have a lot of fun with the plants. That's great. Uh, so obviously, based on what we've discussed so far, we know it's a really cool kind of different flavor profile that's not super available, at least currently here in the U.S., um, but that it has a super important role in the cuisine of Japan. So can you talk about maybe what role it plays in uh, the, the role that wasabi plays in Japanese cuisine and perhaps, um, you know, the, the prevalence of it being farmed over in Japan? Sure. My understanding is that one of the original driving factors to the use of wasabi uh, with sushi in the Japanese culture is because of its uh, significant antibacterial properties. So wasabi has been used for thousands of years as sort of a, a nutraceutical supplement, let's say. Um, and it, it has, in addition to antibacterial, it has anti-inflammatory properties. It has um, anti-cancer properties. So that was one of the reasons why the Japanese started to use it, because it was a great thing to pair with raw fish. It also has been used to treat parasites. So if there's any parasites in your piece of raw fish that you're eating and you're also eating wasabi with it, the odds of you getting sick go way down. Um, so the Japanese, most people know about the use of wasabi with sushi. And the traditional use um, with sushi is that the sushi chef decides how much to put on. So you don't necessarily usually get a blob of it on your plate. The chef decides for each piece what the perfect amount of wasabi is. And then when you're presented with the piece, it's already there. The Japanese also love to eat wasabi with steak. And my husband and I have decided that that is one of the most delicious ways to eat wasabi. So kind of like you would think of as in our culture, in the U.S. culture of serving horseradish with steak. Wasabi with steak and a little bit of soy sauce is one of the most delicious things ever. Oh, that sounds really, really lovely. It's amazing. They also do a lot of pickling with the leaves and stems, which is actually a really simple thing to do. You can do a very simple, quick salt and sugar pick pickle with the leaves and the stems that will take less than half an hour. And then you have a pickled product to serve with your meal. Um, and then anyone who's, who's been to Japan has probably seen there's this myriad of wasabi food items that you can get now. You can get wasabi soda. You can get soft serve ice cream. You can get Kit Kat bars, puddings. I mean, there's all, there's all, all types of things that you can get. But the most traditional uses are still the, the pickled leaves and stems, um, as well as, you know, traditionally with sushi and then also the with steak. Really, really cool. One of the uh, things I like to do when we talk about, you know, uh, specific culture or geography is kind of like, you know, you present us with a fact, right? That the Japanese uh, eat wasabi with their seafood and they happen to eat a lot of seafood because if you think about it, like Japan is just a bunch of rocks. There's not a whole bunch of fertile, you know, loamy farmland there. And so a lot of the you know, logically, a lot of the cuisine there is going to be sourced from the sea, which is something that they have a lot more access to relative to their the size of their country than other places would have as their culture evolves. So it makes complete sense that these people who, 
you know, are basically tied to the sea are going to be using this plant as, you know, a way to make sure that that is a sustainable source of food for them. and They're not getting sick. That's, that's a really cool connection to me. Yeah, I thought so too. And, um, there, there has now actually been some medical trials in the U.S. where they've looked at the efficacy of it for for different cancers, for flus and cold viruses. So I think that um, we know more, much more about the culinary use of wasabi. But what drove that original culinary use is, are you know, is, are the health aspects of it. And I think that's actually something that we're very interested in. And there's a lot more information coming out about that. That's great. Um, and in the same way, cocktail bitters are also, you know, kind of tied to that medicinal tradition. So it kind of makes sense for us. I didn't even know coming into this interview that, that wasabi had such a, uh, strong tie to, um, as you said, nutraceuticals. Um, so it kind of makes sense that we're marrying these, you know, bitters and wasabi in, in one product. And, uh, even though we're not doctors here and, uh, none of this is medical advice, um, you know, there's something to be said for looking at an entire history of a culture and seeing that these people have been using it in that way for thousands, hundreds, thousands of years. Correct. Yes. And we are not doctors either. So I'm not, I'm not telling people to go out and get wasabi and use it for anything specific. Um, cool. we did have, um, we did have very, one very, very funny uh, use for it this year because apparently an article came out about the efficacy of wasabi in growing hair. So we did have people buying it and grinding it up and putting it on their heads. And but, are, were there any uh, before and after photos? <laughs> no, I, I really desperately wanted some. I haven't received any before and after, but I was really clear with everyone. I don't, I'm not sure this is something you should do. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, that's funny. Um, does it burn? I mean, if you if you put it on your skin, is it going to burn? No, uh, it doesn't actually. If it only burns if you get it in a mucous membrane. So, like if you get it in your eyes, um, you know, obviously in your nose, in your mouth. But the the heat molecules in wasabi are water based, as opposed to a chili, which is oil based. Which is why when you eat wasabi, you get that rush and then it goes away. It doesn't linger. Interesting. Okay. So that's, um, you know, as, as somebody who makes bitters, it's, it's, it's important to me what types of molecules, you know, even though I don't have a science background, it's important to think about what types of molecules that I'm working with, because in the instance of, for example, our orange bitters, you know, we're trying to extract an oil, whereas with the wasabi, you know, you're saying that the kind of the spice is a water, water-based molecule. Um, Correct. And that makes a difference in our process. Um, and so, you know, that's why juicing those leaves and, um, you know, doing it that way is really effective for us to get that, you know, you get that nice, um, you know, well-rounded flavor spectrum of both the roots and, and the stem for us. So that, that's all really interesting information. Um, and I think, you know, listeners at this point are kind of, you know, starting to get some ideas. Hopefully some of them are going to visit your site uh, check out some plant starts, um, just in general, learn more about wasabi. But, um, I'm wondering also if you have any insight that you can share about, um, Japan. Um, have, have you had any contact with Japanese people in your exploration of wasabi or do you know anything about their culture that you'd like to share with the listeners on this podcast? 
we have had some interactions, and we actually have sought out some Japanese folks who have experience with wasabi in Japan, so that we could basically see what the quality of our wasabi is relative to Japan and some Japanese chefs. The feedback that we've gotten is that the quality of what we produce is as high as what comes out of Japan, which has been great, obviously, for us. Um, and then what I would say to the listeners is that uh, traditionally wasabi is grown in stream beds in Japan and they're terraced and underneath the tree canopy. If you have a chance to grow to go to a, a wasabi farm in Japan, take it. And um, if you don't, go on YouTube and just take a look at some Japanese wasabi farms because they're really they're all built by hand and they're really quite lovely. Really, that's that's interesting. So it's a sh- is it a shade loving plant? Yes, wasabi is a full shade plant. Actually, we grow the plant in greenhouses, and our greenhouses are covered about nine months out of the year, even on the Oregon coast, with all the fog that we get out there. So when people buy the plant starts, we tell them the primary need, the primary requirement for wasabi plants is full shade. It, they don't, they really dislike direct sun. That is good to know. And so in, in theory. This, have you had any experience with folks growing it as an indoor plant in yes. an apartment with like you know a suboptimal light? Yes, actually, um, we have quite a few folks in the Midwest and in the Northeast where it gets really cold in the winter, and they grow their plants inside. And if you keep it in a corner, just away from um, direct light, the plants are just happy, happy as can be. Very good, good to know. So moving back to Japan. Is there anybody in your area that you've come across who's who makes cocktails in a Japanese fashion or using Japanese ingredients, or has anybody used your wasabi as a cocktail ingredient before? Yes to the second question. I'm not sure about the first question. I mean, there certainly are some really great sushi restaurants um, in Portland who are who also who also create their own cocktails. Um, now, whether or not those are traditional Japanese-style cocktails, I couldn't necessarily say. Um, but we have had a few folks use our wasabi in cocktails. Um, Zilla Sake is one of the restaurants, and they created a really delicious um, martini with the wasabi, which is kind of a – if you go online and look up wasabi drinks, the martinis are one thing that come up. We also have had some folks um, – so there's been some infused vodka – um, with our wasabi, uh, also a couple different beers and, uh, and an, and an, and a cider, actually an apple wasabi cider. So some of those, um, I think the cider as well was, was used in a cocktail and unfortunately I should have those ingredients in mind. I don't have them specifically in mind. Um, the thing that, the thing that I think people have used our wasabi in the most it, are, um, Bloody Mary's. Okay. It makes an amazing addition to Bloody Marys. Yes, it, it seems to be. Okay, so this is good. We're, we're kind of building a list for our listeners here because in, in the uh, podcast, you know, we, we, you know, we like to get into the kind of nerdy history, the nerdy chemistry, the nerdy food science. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, we want people to be able to go out and make some drinks with this. And I, um, in this episode, I'll be, I'll be featuring a few of them. So it's good to also have these as additions. Before we jump off here, I just wanted to give you the chance to tell folks 
who are listening to the Modern Bar Cart podcast, how they can connect with you on social, via the web, um, or perhaps via email if they have any questions for you. Sure. Thanks. Uh, so our website is the Wasabi Store. So the wasabistore.com. People can find us on um, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Oregon Coast Wasabi. And they can email me uh, at jennifer at oregoncoastwasabi.com. And that comes obviously directly to me. Perfect. All right, Jennifer, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Eric. It's, we are so excited about what you guys do. Thanks so much. Cheers. As you can see, wasabi is a really fascinating and authentic Japanese ingredient, and we're really thrilled that we're able to partner with a company dedicated to that craft here in the U.S. But there's still some questions left on the table that we need to answer for this episode, like, why haven't we had a cocktail yet? And what the heck does iki mean? A couple featured cocktails that really accentuate the iki Japanese bitters by embitterment are... A riff on the Martinez, which features gin, and also a very refined Manhattan kind of Rob Roy spinoff using Japanese whiskey. First, we'll take a look at this Iki Martinez, which uses two ounces of gin, a half ounce of sweet vermouth, I used Carpano Antica, a quarter ounce of maraschino liqueur, and one dropper of Iki Japanese bitters. This is a stirred drink, so after you chill these ingredients in your mixing pint, stir them and strain them into a nice stemmed cocktail glass and garnish, if you like, with a lemon twist. The tiny amount of maraschino liqueur in this cocktail gives a bit of lushness that acts as a perfect counterpoint to the green, spicy, umami flair of the Iki Japanese bitters. It's lovely to sip on slowly, and the flavor profile definitely evolves as the cocktail warms up. Next, we've got our whiskey cocktail, which I'm calling the Edo Project in honor of Tokyo's traditional name. And I'm quickly going to hit on a few important facts about Japanese whiskey, which resembles Scotch whiskey more closely than it does American bourbon or rye. First, it's spelled with no E in the word whiskey. And there's a good little mnemonic that I use to help me remember how to spell a given whiskey from around the world. And here it is. If the country it comes from has an E in the name, then there's an E in the word. This is true of the United States as well as Ireland. However, if there's no E, as in Scotland or Japan, you omit the E from the word whiskey. Pretty simple. Japanese whiskey is made with malted and sometimes peated barley, and then aged in most cases in American bourbon casks. However, the climate in Japan varies more widely than that of Scotland, so the aging conditions result in a product with a slightly different set of characteristics. And hopefully, very soon, we'll be able to put together an episode just on Japanese whiskey so we can delve into that more closely. But what about that cocktail? To make the Edo project, you'll need two ounces of Japanese whiskey, a half ounce of dry vermouth, I used Vaya, V-Y-A, from California, and one dropper full of Iki Japanese bitters. This is somewhere between a dry Manhattan and a Rob Roy, with a really funky twist added by the Japanese bitters. And like the Iki Martinez, all you gotta do is stir this until it's well chilled and then strain it into your cocktail glass. You'll notice that both of these cocktails are fairly simple, 
And if there's an extravagance to them, it's in the quality or nature of the ingredients, not the complexity of how they're combined. This brings us to the final aspect of Japanese culture we'll consider in this episode, their unique cultural aesthetic. I think it's it's sort of the their attention to aesthetic and detail that I have found to be really wonderful. And um, even in even in farming, um, we've had some folks come out to the farm and just talk with us about their experience with Japanese wasabi farms. And, and some of it is driven by the intention of the aesthetics of the place, as opposed to in our culture, which be, which seems to be very driven by function and efficiency, both in really good sushi and the production of wasabi for that sushi. Um, you see this attention to beauty that I think sometimes we miss out in our country. And, um, we're trying hard to investigate or trying hard to incorporate some of that into our farm. It's still a farm and it's a functional farm, but we're trying to figure out how to incorporate some more beauty and some pay attention a little more to some of the aesthetics of the place as well. If I had to characterize Japanese aesthetics, I'd say it's a seemingly contradictory blend of extreme simplicity and highly stylized attention to detail. This is also tinged by a reverence for imperfection out of which are born several important aesthetic principles. One is wabi-sabi, and I'll just let Wikipedia take it away on this one. According to Wikipedia, wabi originally referred to the loneliness of living in nature remote from society. Sabi meant chill, lean, or withered. Around the 14th century, these meanings began to change, taking on more positive connotations. Wabi now connotes rustic simplicity, freshness or quietness, or understated elegance. It can also refer to quirks and anomalies arising from the process of construction, which adds uniqueness and elegance to the object. Sabi is beauty or serenity that comes with age, when the life of the object and its impermanence are evidenced in its patina and wear, or in any visible repairs. And Another term that wabi-sabi gives rise to is kintsugi, which is the artistic repair of cracked pottery using gold or metallic lacquer to accentuate the cracks and imperfections rather than hiding them. See, the Japanese believe that the life of an object gives it a certain power or value. And so drinking tea, for example, from a carefully repaired cup that was once broken is preferable to using a brand new cup right off the line from the factory. Another thing that strikes me about the Japanese aesthetic is that it's so grounded in the natural world. Most of us come across this aspect in haiku, the popular and brief poems arranged in three lines of five, seven, and five syllables. Usually these poems have some reference to nature as well as a nod to the fleetingness of life. And we're pretty familiar with these. We've come across them usually in our high school or college poetry classes. And, um, you know, they're, they're a fun little exercise um, that, that we can do to kind of understand Japanese aesthetics at least a little bit. But one fact I bet you didn't know is that whereas we here in North America have four seasons, the Japanese have 72 separate micro-seasons, each with its own set of associated natural phenomena. In late March, 
for example, sparrows start to nest is followed by first cherry blossoms and then by distant thunder. In early October, wild geese return is followed by chrysanthemums bloom and then by crickets chirp around the door. These really precise views of nature and the changing of the seasons are, to me, a perfect example of that Japanese precision, but it's a precision that's always in touch with constant change. I'll end this episode by explaining why we chose the Japanese concept of iki as the name for our bitters. And iki is both an aesthetic word and a way of life. It's a type of style that's unique to the people of Japan because it pits their own unique aesthetic values against certain universal truths of the human experience, namely that life is hard, and if you get attached to something or someone, you're probably going to experience loss. That whole attachment idea is a direct borrowing from Buddhist philosophy. In 1930, a Japanese scholar named Kuki Shuzo published a text called The Structure of Iki, or The Structure of Detachment, and I'm going to read a couple quick notes from that here. In the introduction to the work, the translator discusses a set of values and actions that became typical in Edo, Japan in the late 1700s. Quote, A man or woman in pursuit of Iki would employ a certain cool, elegant, and flirtatious demeanor, backed by pluck, to win over the object of desire. This spiritual tenet became sublimated in the psyche of the common people of Edo, and by the beginning of the 18th century, the townspeople there identified themselves very closely with Iki and strove to cultivate and embody this spirit. Iki became such a rarefied, creed-like code of behavior that it was said to be detectable in every facet of life, including patterns of speech, choices in food, furniture, and other household items, not to mention courting behavior, and clothing colors and patterns. End quote. Here you can see how passion and detachment are linked. Hot and cold. There's those contradictions again. Iki knows when to follow the rules and when to break them. How to flirt and how to move on quickly. It acknowledges the pain and passion of attachment, but it's on to the next adventure before love can blossom or loss can hurt. Iki translates not only to personal actions and passions of the blood, but also to aesthetics. Kuki Shuzo, the author of The Structure of Detachment, says, quote, In sum, we can say that colors expressive of Iki offer inactive afterimages that accompany a luscious experience. Iki lives in the future, holding the past in its arms. A coolly discerning knowledge based on personal or social experience rules Iki, whose existence depends on maintaining possibility as a possibility. The soul that has tasted the last drop of sizzling excitement of warm colors draws on the quietude in cool colors that offer complementary afterimages. Iki embodies in its sensuality the gray of colorblindness, it allows for being tinged by another color without being muddled by it. Iki shelters a dark negation concealed within its sensual affirmation. End quote. He also says that, quote, taste begins with tasting, with lived experience. And it's this combination of effortless style and human imperfection that drew us to the concept of Iki in the first place. 
That's all for today's episode, but until next time, we hope you'll check out our Iki Japanese bitters to get a taste of Japan and maybe even make some effortlessly stylish cocktails of your own. Cheers. New year, new outro comments, so listen up. If you liked this episode, spread the word. Tell us, tell your friends, tell your dad it's time he tried a new cocktail. Ask your mom where she put your granddad's cocktail shaker. Start having conversations about cocktails. You can join in our conversation by tagging or mentioning us on Facebook or Instagram at Modern Barcart, or feel free to type a long flowing email for me to read and send it along to podcast at modernbarcart.com. We're real people and we actually respond to your comments and your emails. Also, if you want to go ahead and break the fifth wall and actually become a part of the Modern Barcart podcast by allowing me to interview you, that email I just mentioned is also where you can go and introduce yourself. Keep an eye out for new products as we continue to build out our awesome line of cocktail mixers, accessories, and gear. And until next time, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. Boldly.